This message by Bob Coughlin titled, Gathering to Edify, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the fourth general session at our Worship God 2011 conference. Bob serves as Director of Worship Development for Sovereign Grace Ministries and is a worship leader at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Oh, our first Worship God conference was back in 2004. I think this is actually the 10th conference that uh, I've led since 1994. And there were plenty of worship conferences around at that time. And what I remember thinking is about how, how often we tended to use the word worship without specifying the object. So you'd hear people say, and this began, I think, back in the, maybe even the 70s, but most prominently in the 90s, I'm going to worship. Full stop. After the sermon, we'll worship. Or, hey, let's worship. You know, it always struck me, you know, we, like worship is a transitive verb. Which for some of you are just thinking, what? <laughs> what I mean by a transitive verb is it's a verb, an action word, that... <laughs> I don't want to assume anything about the group here. It's an action word that requires an object to make sense. So uh, another transitive verb would be throw. I want to throw. You know, I, I want to throw a ball. I want to throw you down the stairs. It makes, it makes a difference. Or look, mommy, that man's holding. Let's go hold. It doesn't make any sense. You know, that man's holding a baby. Oh, that's so cute. That man's holding a bomb. Oh! <laughs> it, it really makes a difference what the object of the verb is. So when we, when we say, one of the, so when we say, you know, we're going to worship, we're going to worship what? Who or what are we worshiping? When Christians gather, we are meant to worship God in Jesus Christ. So to make the point, I called the conference, this conference, the Worship God Conference. And it's one word. It's the Worship God Conference. It's not just a worship conference like, hey, who knows what we're going to be worshiping. No, we're going to worship God. Because when we gather, we can worship different things. Worship, we worship what we ascribe ultimate value to. What we think will most satisfy. The things we pursue above everything else. The things that govern our lives. So when we gather, we could be worshiping the music. We could be thinking, I really get more satisfaction out of the music than what we're singing about, than who we're singing to. We could be worshiping our buildings. We could be worshiping our comfort or a thousand other things that vie for ultimate supremacy and authority and satisfaction in our hearts. So this is the worship God conference. Worship is meant to be all about God and especially when we gather and and we're getting that through the messages this is this is about god it's about beholding god it's about rehearsing the gospel of god it's about hearing the word of god but when we say that worship is all about god it can lead to some unhelpful and what i believe are unbiblical statements unhelpful because they're not true could say something like this. We worship God because He's worthy, 
Not because we get something out of it. So is it like supposed to be painful? Is it supposed to be a bad experience? No. We're supposed to get something out of it. Because He's God. Or this. When we sing songs about what God has done for us, that's man-centered. Have you ever said that or heard someone say that? That's not true. God loves us to delight in what He's done for us. Or this one. God likes our worship best when we block out everyone and everything around us and just focus on God. Like we're in hermetically sealed compartments. And it's unfortunate that there happen to be people in the room. You know, if that were true, we should all just stay home on Sunday mornings. Much better experience. Don't have to worry about people singing out of tune or people singing the wrong words or people causing you some discomfort. Just you and Jesus. But that's not what God commands us to do. He commands us to meet together and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So I want to speak this morning to that imbalanced perspective because the reality is we gather to meet with God but also with each other. Brian Chappell says it like this in Christ-Centered Worship, page 119 if you're interested. Making God the exclusive goal of worship sounds very reverent, but actually fails to respect Scripture's own gospel priorities. Certainly it is true that God is the most important audience member for our worship. But if God were not concerned for the good of His people, get this, His glory would be diminished. He's not an uncaring king. He's not an insensitive ruler. He expects us not only to praise His name, but also to teach, admonish, and encourage one another in Worship. So, we have a dilemma. Worship's all about God, but it's also about meeting with each other. How do we, speaking, teaching and admonishing each other. How do we bring those two together? Well, that's what I'm going to try and do this morning. And I entitled this message, Gathering to Edify. And we're going to look at two passages, 1 Corinthians 14 and two verses from Ephesians 4 and talk about the other side of the coin we call worship. And what we're speaking of is edification. Edification. E-D-I-F-I-C-A-tion. To edify means to build up. It's the opposite of tearing down. And when it's a noun in Scripture, it's translated as building. to structure. It often involves instruction and results in something or someone being strengthened. And God isn't ambivalent or apathetic towards His people building each other up when we meet. In fact, in the two passages we'll be looking at this morning, we'll see this. When we edify the church by magnifying God, by magnifying Christ, we glorify God. Let me say that again. When we edify the church... By magnifying Christ, we glorify God. Now in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's speaking to a church made of of people who have misunderstood God's purpose in giving us spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were enamored with certain gifts, especially the spectacular ones. 
speaking in tongues, miracles, healings, and look down on those with the lesser gifts. Gifts like helps. Oh, you got the gift of helps? I'm so sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's probably going on. You know, watch this. They thought, they, they really thought that those who spoke in tongues were the most spiritually mature individuals. So Paul says, and then we're going to read it. No, I'd rather speak five words and in an intelligible tongue than 10,000 words in a tongue, an unknown tongue. I'd rather speak five words you can understand than 10,000 words that you have no idea what I'm talking about. In a gathering designed to bring glory to God, to worship God, Paul focuses on how we're to think of and relate to each other. It's wild. And this, this thought first came through to me in force when I read Engaging with God by David Peterson. So we're going to read, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 33. It's a long passage, but we never have to apologize for reading long passages of Scripture in our churches. This is the Word of God. This is the best thing you'll hear me say this morning. So pay attention. And and listen, note how many times Paul references building up or edification. 1 Corinthians 14, pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, for he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. That's often not said in our churches. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. Why? So that the church may be built up. Now brothers, If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none was without without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, One who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. 
I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct you, others, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 28 here, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And what he's saying there is that if an unbeliever comes and hears a tongue, they won't understand it, and it will be a confirmation of God's judgment against them, that they haven't turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. So it's a sign for unbelievers. But, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers... Then he gives an example. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? It will just confirm God's judgment. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outside enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And may God give us more meetings like that in our churches. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Father, we we need your help this morning. I need your help to, to communicate your word effectively and accurately and passionately. And we all need your help to hear in our hearts, to hear with our minds what you're saying to us. Keep us alert, keep us attentive to your voice so that we may lead our churches in being churches that glorify you by building each other up as we magnify our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Now, I'm not going to get into a discussion about the specifics of tongues and prophecy this morning. I will just say that I believe the Bible teaches that both exist in some form today and that neither is meant to undermine, replace, or affect the unique authority and sufficiency of Scripture. I want to make that clear. 
What I want to focus on is Paul's perspective that drives this whole discussion. And you can apply this whether you think tongues is, exist today or not. What drives this perspective is edification and its importance. When we gather, edification is meant to take place. And it happens in two distinct but interconnected ways. So my, my message just has two points. And they're pretty simple. Here's the first one. When we gather, we edify each other. When we gather, we edify each other. Typically, we think that the responsibility for building up the church belongs to those who serve in some public context. You know, the pastor is meant to edify the church. The, the musicians, the team, the, the worship pastor, the worship leader is meant to edify the church. And it's revealed in our comments about meetings when someone asks us, how was the meeting today? How was church today? Well, the pastor did a good job. It was good. I, th- I thought, you know, it was good. Or, yeah, the, the worship leader just did a great job. Yeah, it's really good. You know, something that someone else has done. But God expects us to come to the meeting with the expectation that we'll edify one another, that we'll build up one another. So in verse 1, Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. In verse 3, one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's that's member to member. Verse 5, so that the church may be built up. He's talking about the one who prophesies. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 26, let all things be done for building up. He's serious about this, which means God is serious about this. We are meant to build up one another. We're meant to edify others, and we're meant to expect that others will edify us. We should expect that God will use us to do this when we gather as the church. No one's left out. No one's forgotten. Now, in verse 26, we see there are diverse ways that that happens. And Paul says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. It's by no means a complete list. You know, preaching isn't mentioned. Greeting isn't mentioned. Reading scripture isn't mentioned. But those things are are included in things we do when we gather. We can see from other parts of the New Testament. It could even be that Paul is gently scolding the Corinthians for being so eager to outdo one another in contributing to the meeting, which leads him to putting limitations on how they're exercised. So you might have someone say, yeah, I've got a hymn, I've got a tongue, there's an interpretation, I've got a prophecy, I've got a revelation, I've got a... Just, just, okay, we've got to bring some structure and order to this. God's not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. Great that you're interested in, in, in using your gifts, but you're missing a really important point. You're not doing it to build each other up. You're doing it, you're doing it for some other reason. And what, what God wants us to do is to seek personal edification through edifying others. He wants to pursue being built up ourselves by building up others through greeting them, 
praying for them, singing to them, reading scripture to them, encouraging them, and other spiritual gifts. And as we do this, there are two priorities Paul gives us, God gives us, that guide us in the way we edify one another. First priority is the priority of love. Verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Paul thinks this aspect of love is so important that he takes, takes the 13 verses of the entire the chapter beforehand to talk about it. In, right in the middle of his discussion of spiritual gifts and how they're to function in the church, he says, you know what? Let, let me get to the most excellent way. Let, let me tell you what's behind your seeking to build up one another, what needs to be behind it, and that is love. In the beginning of chapter 13, he says, you know what? You could speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if it lacks love, it's like beating a trash can lid. It's a, it's a clanging symbol. It means nothing. You can prophesy and you can understand deep mysteries and know a lot of stuff, but if it's loveless, it means nothing. You can, you can exercise great faith towards people, but if love isn't behind it, it means nothing in God's eyes. You can give sacrificially. You can even offer up your body to be a martyr. But if it's not because you're pursuing love, it means nothing. So building others up without love as our motivation means nothing. And one of the ways we lack love when we minister to others is when we use it as a way of gaining glory for ourselves rather than gaining glory for Jesus Christ. That's that's seeking to edify others apart from love. We're loving ourselves, not others. I've had conversations with musicians at various times who are new to the church and they say, I want, I'm a musician, I want to be used here. And, and say, oh, that's outstanding. You know, we have, so, we have a real need in children's ministry. And you can see the look on their face. It's not exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking like Sunday morning. Like solo. That's what I was thinking. Are you thinking that? And, you know, I have to hear him to tell him whether, whether I'm thinking that or not. But if, if we want to serve in a way that's motivated by love, if we want to build others up in a way that's motivated by love, we, we want to serve where there are needs. It's, it's not about how, how much I'm in the spotlight. It, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Because when I'm seeking to build others up, I want to be where God can best use me, not where I think I deserve to be used. We lack love when we're insensitive to how what we're doing might affect others. So maybe the way we pray or maybe our physical expressiveness or lack thereof. I was talking to some some leaders last night and uh, they were saying like, <clears throat> it just can be really discouraging sometimes to look out 
and see the people you're leading. Some of them. You know, they're like this. My hope is built on nothing less than... You know, I bet that that person is totally unaware, one, of how they might be affecting the leader, but two, the opportunity they're missing out on to build up someone else through the way they're responding to the Lord. And I'm not commending a one particular style or practice of expressiveness. I did a whole seminar on it two years ago, Let the People Be Glad. We just want to respond the way we would when we heard the greatest news in the world. The King of Glory has become a man and lived a perfect life in our place and died to pay our debt for all our sins. And he's risen from the dead. He's defeated death, hell, sin, and the grave. And now he's ascended to the Father's right hand. He's reigning and he's interceding for us. Oh, really? Is that it? (laughs) That's all you got? Uh, when we planted uh, a church one time, there was we were meeting in a movie theater, and there was a uh, wonderful lady who came, started visiting the church, and she they came for a while, and um, she just had this habit of praying. I think it was praying um, at different times. She she would just start doing this. And it wasn't like there were a lot of people doing that. It was... (laughs) Which would have helped. But it was just her. So so I talked with her about it and, you know, tried to lovingly explain that when we gather as the church, it's not just about how I feel towards Jesus. It's about how I feel towards those around me as well. And that actually is a way of bringing Him glory. Being aware of the people around me. And how what I'm doing affects them. Now, the reason that loving others is a priority in the way we serve each other is because this is the way God has served us. He loved us so much that He sent His Son to rescue us from our sure damnation. 1 John 3.16 says this, Never gets old. Becky, it only gets better. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love is a priority as we seek to build each other's up. The other priority Paul draws us our attention to is the priority of intelligibility or whether or not what we're doing can be understood. People need to understand what we're doing. (laughs) They need to get it. 
It's not like this is some elite mystery club that we're all a part of. And when people come in, they're, you know, they have got to know the code words and, you know, how to figure stuff. What is that? Is this what that means? Now, that we shouldn't, they should know what we're doing. So here's how Paul says it in verses 6 through 11. He's addressing the Corinthians who, who seem to be completely unaware of this as we can be at times. He says, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And then he uses these analogies. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So I don't know what we're doing with video, but I'm going to walk over to the piano right now. So if you want to follow me, that might be good. Okay, so it's like this, just to flesh that illustration out. All right, we're going to sing Amazing Grace together. Okay, together. Why didn't you start? Come on. It's amazing grace. Can't you hear it? It's right there. I hear it so fine. I think you get my point. Okay. It, it, it means nothing to people. And they can't join in with you. So... For us, is there too much Christianese in our prayers and messages and conversations and song lyrics? Is there just too much stuff that we get but no one else does? You know, sometimes we, we change words to old hymns. Sometimes we leave them. But if you leave them and you're talking about Ebenezer's, you've got to explain that's not from a Christmas carol. <laughs> And, and take him to Samuel where, you know, Samuel said, well, this is our Ebenezer. This is, you know, thus far God has helped us. And, and let him know what, what you're doing in our prayers. You know, oh, fa- well, you know, I don't have to use examples. It, it's just ways we tend to talk. Sometimes when, when people pray, it's, it seems like God has forgotten his name. You know, Father God, we thank you today, Father God, that you're here, Father God, to bless us, Father God. And we want... Okay, okay, I know. Or, or... Well, I won't go there. Do, do newcomers understand our traditions, our liturgies, and familiar patterns? And do we help them understand? Um, Brian Chaplin, in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, has an excellent chapter called Rubrics, which, which in itself needs some explanation. Rubrics. He's just talking about you know how we tie together what we're doing, and it's just so important that when we come together, we are helping people, especially guests, newcomers, young Christians, understand why we're doing what we're doing. And here's the point: that is not unspiritual. That brings glory to God. 
You know, I, I, we come from a tradition uh, of the charismatic movement of the 70s where if you said anything as people were singing and, and you know, beholding the Lord, it was as though you were just telling the Holy Spirit to leave. Holy Spirit, I know you're doing something, but I've got to say something here. Don't leave. just going to say a little something. <laughs> we'll be back to your part in just a second. Uh-uh. And, so, and so what happened is you, you develop this culture of meetings where someone walks in and it's just like Corinth. You go, what is going on here? I don't get, I don't get this. And it's true, God in His mercy would at times, you know, save people in those contexts and, and bring them into the kingdom and, and, and the church. But that's, that's not what He wants to do it. That's not the way He wants to do it. He wants to do it through genuine expressions of encountering God, but in a way that other people understand. So for those of us who, who have worked at encouraging spontaneous contributions, and I'll talk about that in a moment, they shouldn't be confusing. Uh, you know, just to be spontaneous, sometimes we, we will, well, hey, uh, th- yeah, let's, I think this is happening and this is going on. And by the end, people are going, what was that? What's he talking about? We want to be clear. We want to be brief. I love what Brooks did this morning. Just It's very clear where we're going, what we're doing, what we're saying. That's so helpful. So, a few implications on this point of intelligibility. Well, one is that we should provide opportunity for contributions from the congregation, both planned and spontaneous. Now, that, that will decrease as the church size increases. But it is something I think every one, every church needs to consider. How do we make room for that? You know, if we're to edify one another, is there a place for that? Is there a way we can do that? It can be planned. Uh, someone giving a testimony, someone reading a scripture, someone sharing a prayer. I think another implication, and we were talking about this, I was talking about this last night uh, with a group of leaders, is just the way we do our lighting. This is the first time I've ever said anything public about this because I've been just wanting to weigh it for a long time. But I, I think I've come to a settling place. When we gather, um, it's not about trying to cut out all the people around us and pretend they're not there. It's about rejoicing the fact that we are the body of Christ, that, that God in His mercy has brought together through Christ And we are meant to be encouraging one another, even as we sing. Doesn't mean we have to have, you know, lights in the congregation. And for some of us, this isn't even an issue. You know, you meet in a cafeteria, you turn on the lights, they're on. (laughs) But as churches grow in size, you know, we have a lot more options. And I I think I remember this starting to happen back in the 90s, when uh, seeker-sensitive churches would... You know, for youth group meetings, turn down the lights low. And it, people would, you know, feel less awkward coming in and just kind of hang out, be, not be noticed and stuff. But then it started happening on Sunday morning, maybe concerts, but then Sunday mornings. It's like, you know, are, is everyone out there? I mean, here's some reasons why I think we should keep a level of lighting in our congregation to a point where we can really see each other. At a concert, when it's time for the, the fans to sing there, to sing with the band, what do they do with, their light, with the lighting? 
they turn all the lighting on the people. And then it's back to the band again. I can't be inspired by hundreds of people around me if I can't see them. I mean, I know they're there. I can hear them, but I I can't see what they're doing. As a leader, I can't see the faces of the people I'm leading. And how do I know if we're edifying one another if, if I can't even see them? And I know, you know, some would think, well, you, you know, it's distracting to see that person out there with their hands folded and, you know, it's just, or see this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but if you're distracted by what you see, you're leading to receive rather than to give. And God wants us to lead, to give, to serve, and to do it in a way that's intelligible, to do it in a way that people understand and get. So when we did the worship team evaluation seminar yesterday, we had three music teams uh, get up and play a song, and then we just talked about the things that were encouraging, things could be better. Um, you know, one of the things we talked about was just our countenance and, and what that says to people. It's a way of serving people. And we, we want to do it in a way that's intelligible. You don't have to be a light bulb. Yeah. You know, that's my Sunday morning face and when I'm in the congregation, totally different. No, what what we do in the congregation, we want to do up here, but it just should be a natural. Delight yourself in the Lord. It is good. It is good. To, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. This is, it's not fake joy. It's a, it's not fake happiness. It's, or, or, or surface happiness. It's a deep joy that is there in the midst of great trials and and challenges and discouragement, that joy remains because it's eternal and it doesn't change and we know how it all turns out. So it's, it's always there. So that's, that's my pitch for turning the lights up. Open your eyes when you sing. It's another, I did a post on worshipmatters.com, um, open the eyes of my face, Lord. Because, listen, I, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but when I'm, I'm down front singing, I, there are numerous times I'll just look around and see you all. I'll just look at you all because it fills my heart with joy. And it's different than me just in, encountering the Lord by myself. I'm thinking, I, I see faces filled with joy. I see, I see people encountering the Lord. I see people singing with passion. That builds me up. That is really edifying. Amen. But you know what? I won't see it if I'm doing this. Yeah. I'll just be imagining just, you know, passionate hands being lifted, people pouring out their hearts. No, I want to see it. And if it's not there, then I want to do a better job of directing their attention to the glories of God in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Not just tell them, you know, lift those hands. I said, dance. I won't do that. <laughs> Although, although we have been guilty of that in the past. <laughs> I, I want to I remind them of, of the great news we have to sing about and to share with others. I think singers at times, we can, we can pull away from our mics at times, you know, to, to, to build others up as a way of loving them, as a way of being intelligible. Just pull away from our mics um, and let, let the congregation hear themselves. That's the most important sound when we gather. I mean, I love great musicianship. Love skillful 
artistry, you know, people who know their instruments and know how to play them. But that's all being done to support faith-filled singing in the congregation. And so if they can never hear themselves, we're not really building them up. So how can we serve them? Well, just pull away from your mics at times. Do a cappella. Just do a verse or a chorus a cappella. I, I mean, I would encourage you, every time you gather, to have some moment in the meeting, and this isn't, this isn't in the Bible anywhere, but I think the principle is, encourage, uh, at some point in your meeting, let the people sing by themselves. Again, in, in the worship team's uh, evaluation seminar we did, um, we were talking about, you know, one, one instrument can, can carry, can lead the whole congregation. Because we, we tend to think, well, it's got to be the whole band. No, no. In fact, doing just one instrument really enables the congregation to hear themselves. And they can build each other up. It's not just about us on the platform in front seeking to you know, build everybody up. It's about us building each other up. All right, so those are some of the implications. We edify each other. Earlier I said we see that when we edify the church by magnifying Christ, we glorify God. So now I want to look at the other way that edification takes place when we gather. I want to step back and see the bigger picture of what's happening. Because it's not just about us edifying one another which brings glory to God. Here's point two. God edifies His church. We edify each other and God edifies his church. God is interested not only in strengthening us as individuals, but in strengthening the church. Gordon Fee, theologian, says in his commentary in 1 Corinthians, the building up of the community is the basic reason for corporate settings of worship. He didn't say the individual. The building up of the community is the basic reason for corporate settings of worship. They should probably not be turned into a corporate gathering for a thousand individual experiences of worship. And that's understated. They should probably not be turned into that. No, they should never be turned into that. Because God uses different metaphors for the church. Things like the body of Christ. Now, try to think of these in a disconnected way where the pieces aren't connected. It's gruesome. The body of Christ. There's a finger over there. (laughs) The foot right there. But they're having great experiences with the Lord. (laughs) Got the arm rolling around over there. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. A building. We are God's building our relationships our connectedness our bonds matter to god he wants them strong no i don't know if you've ever passed a construction site or building a house or maybe an office building and you just see a pile of bricks randomly you know laying in a part of the the property that's not the building i mean they may be stacked up neatly but they're not connected someone could come up and just shove them over And they fall apart. And that does nothing to bring security or safety or protection to anyone. They're just random bricks sitting out there. When we gather, God wants to strengthen the spiritual mortar that binds us together. 
So how does he do that? What's happening? What is God doing besides simply giving us spiritual gifts to build up each other? Well, I want you to turn to Ephesians 4. We're just going to look at two verses. Ephesians was written about nine years after Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians. So he's had some experience working with churches. And in this passage, Paul is describing how the ascended Christ has given gifts to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, who are responsible to equip the church for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And the goal is to grow up into Christ. So Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. He says, Rather, speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So how... What, what is God doing? What, what is He building? How is He building us? He's building us into Jesus Christ. That's how He's building us together. He's building us into Jesus Christ. Verse 15. We are growing up in every way into Him who is the head. Into Christ. God is seeking to make us corporately, not just individually, like His Son. So that we are a people who reflect the character of His Son. So that we are a people who are humble. So that we are a people who are kind and courageous and wise and zealous for truth and compassionate and loving and holy. So that we are a people who are all those things. We are to grow up in every way into Him. Now, why is that? Why are we to grow up into every way into Jesus? Well, John tells us in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. We will see Him as He is and we will become like Him. Not just individually, but as a body. So the purpose of Christians gathering together and the edification that takes place is to prepare us to meet the Lord whom one day we will be like In fact, Paul assumes that one of the ways we're to encourage and build one another up is by rehearsing what will take place when the Lord returns. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 5, 11. He talks about the Lord returning, coming back with a shout. And and then he says, encourage one another with these words. Build each other up with these words. That it will really happen. That despite all your failings and all your discouragements and all your sins and all your disagreements and all your divisions, one day you will look like Jesus Christ. What a promise and what a thought to meditate on. 
So it's, it's similar to what Ray was sharing the first night of the conference. When we gather, we should be expecting so much more than a good meeting, a helpful message with a few helpful tips, an uplifting time. How was the meeting? Oh, it was uplifting. Well, what were you lifted up to? Like a better emotional experience? A higher emotional plateau? No, it's much clearer than that. We're being lifted up into Jesus Christ so that we look like Him. God's making us like His Son, preparing us for an eternal wedding feast. What a thought. That's what our meetings are doing. That's amazing. They are miracles. Now, how does God make us like Jesus Christ? How does He build us up into Jesus Christ? He builds us up through Jesus Christ. So in verse 16, we're being built into the Christ, into Christ the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Where does our growth come from? From us being skillful, spiritual gift people? Not ultimately. It comes from Jesus Christ. So our meetings are meant to be more than moralistic pep talks. I was in a church one time where the message was basically, be stronger. That was it, be stronger. You know, Work harder, be purer. Pursue God more. Don't get angry. I know that stuff. I know I'm supposed to do that. And you're just saying, well, keep doing it. Do it harder. You thought you were working hard. Work harder. That's not good news. And we shouldn't be telling people that. You know, which is why at the, at the end of our meetings or at the end of our times of singing, I don't want to leave people with, you need to do more. What I want to leave them with is Jesus Christ has done it all. And you get to enjoy the fruit. Amen. So go enjoy the fruit. It's amazing. Without the gospel, we have nothing. And Paul, Paul writes like that. You know, there are certainly imperatives in the New Testament. We're told, don't be angry. We're told, love your wife. We're told, don't provoke your children. We're told, don't lie. Those are, those are all imperatives. But they're all preceded by chapter after chapter of the gospel. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So Ephesians, Ephesians, we have the first three chapters. Paul's telling us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The last three chapters, he says, well, okay, now that you know this, now you can live like this. Colossians. First two chapters. This is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He's everything. So, now, because He's your life, chapter 3, you can stop being angry. You can stop being malicious. You can stop living in pure life. Romans, 16 chapters. Romans 1 through 11. All about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So you get to Romans 12. In view of these mercies, do these things. Without the gospel, we have nothing. If we didn't have Christ's incarnation, Jesus would be unable to be our substitute on the cross because He wouldn't be a man. So it's crucial 
that he take on the form of humanity and become a baby. It's crucial. If, if we didn't have Christ's perfect obedience, we would have no righteousness credited to us when we believe that he died in our place. We'd be forgiven, but we wouldn't be righteous. But because he lived a life of perfect obedience, never for one moment disobeying his father, fulfilling his will perfectly for all the years he lived on earth, because he did that, now we, with all our sins and failures, can be clothed in his righteousness and be accepted as dearly loved children of God. This is how God builds us up. If we didn't have Christ's perfect sacrifice, we would still owe our debt to God. We'd have to pay it ourselves. We would not be reconciled to Him. We would be damned forever if Christ's sacrifice was not a perfect offering for our sins. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we'd be of all people most to be pitied. We wouldn't know if death had been conquered. We, didn't, we wouldn't know if the payment for our sins had been fully accepted. We wouldn't know if we'd rise from the dead. It'd all be a big mystery. But He did rise from the dead. And that builds us up. And it strengthens us. It builds us together. He did rise from the dead. And all who believe in Him and trust in Him will one day rise with Him to be like Him. It's amazing. If Christ were not currently reigning and interceding for us, we would be unable to have confidence in His promises. We'd have no certainty that God's purposes in our lives and in history would be fulfilled. But He has ascended to the Father's throne. He is reigning and He is interceding for us. And isn't this good news? That's the gospel. It's the gospel. So the implications for us are these. Our growth together, our being strengthened as individual churches, comes from being rooted and grounded in Christ. So we should make it our aim to gospelize each other, to edify and build up others by helping them see the attractiveness, the implications of, the necessity of, and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Paul says it in this this way, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted And built up in Him. In Him. And established in the faith. Just as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. We want to sing the gospel. We want to preach the gospel. We want to share the gospel. So that we might live the gospel. Glory. Grace. Mission. It's what we have. And it's all we have. And as we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. It's all I want. It's all I need. So both individually and corporately, God wants to use our meetings to build us into Christ and prepare us for that day when the fullness of time has been reached and He unites all things in heaven 
and earth in Christ. Preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, is not a fad. It's not a trend. It's not something that the young, restless, and reformed have found particularly appealing for a moment in time. It's God's eternal purpose for history. One day, one day, everything will be united in Jesus Christ. And when we gather together, that's what's happening. We're being prepared for that day by building each other up and by watching God build us into the image of Christ. What a glorious call. What a glorious privilege. Let's take advantage of the lavish riches of grace that we can both extend to others and receive from others when we gather for the glory of God. Father, thank you that you have called us not to neglect meeting together, but to gather together and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Oh, that day is going to come. We may die before it comes, but that day is going to come. And we will be absent from flesh. We will be clothed with our new glorified body. We will see you. And we will weep for joy. That everything you promised is true. That you never went back on a promise that Jesus did truly redeem a people for your glory. And by your grace and by your mercy, we have been counted among them. So give us a passion for seeking to to build up each other, to build up the church by magnifying Jesus Christ and to see that as a way that you have ordained to worship you and to bring you glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Bob Coughlin, which was given at our Worship God 2011 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.SovereignGraceMinistries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.